I want to take this opportunity to express my appreciation to the session of this church and to your pastor publicly for the privilege which has been mine of being here to preach in this series of services. It's been a real blessing to see the progress that this church has made since I was a student here in seminary nine years ago. Uh, as far as the words of praise, we don't need any of those. I couldn't help but think when he was saying that Gordon had said to give some flowery praise about one occasion in Scotland. Someone asked me why I didn't talk more about Scotland this week because this was the wee Kirk. And uh, I remember one night in a service in the tent hall in Glasgow when a preacher had received more than the unusual amount of flowery praise, he stood and told this story. It seems that a little Scottish boy who was only four or five years of age refused to eat his pudding one evening. The Scots have a lot of quaint customs. One of them is that they have supper about 9.30 or 10 at night. It's not supper like we know out in Texas where you have a big fine meal to eat. Uh, instead, it, you have a, a pudding or a biscuit, and a biscuit isn't a biscuit, it's a cookie and uh, a cup of tea. And so this little fellow was taking his supper before he went to bed, and uh, there was a pudding, and in the center of the pudding there was a prune, and he didn't care for prune. And uh, his mother told him that he had to eat the prune. And in his obstinate Scottish way, he said, I'll not eat the prune. And she said, you will eat the prune. And he said, I'll not eat the prune. And she said, you will. And he said, I won't. And finally she said, young man, you go upstairs immediately and remember that the Lord above is displeased with little children who do not obey their parents. And so he went upstairs, and it must have been weather like this. There was a frightful thunderstorm, and the lightning began to flash, and the thunder rolled, and the window panes rattled in their big old house. And uh, the mother became a little bit concerned about this boy, so she went to see how he was faring. And she looked inside the room, and he was not in his bed. And she looked down the stairwell and could see that the door to the kitchen was ajar, and the light was shining out of the kitchen. And uh, she went down and peeked into the kitchen, and you know what he was doing. He had <laughs> gone over to the cupboard and had taken down the pudding, of course, and when she opened the door with a smile on his face, he said, who would ever think that anyone would make such a fuss over one wee broom? <laughs> so that's the way I feel about the flowery words, too. I want to say this. Uh, I have the privilege of going around to a good many churches in the summertime preaching. And I count your pastor as one of the finest pastors that I know any place. You have every right in the world to be proud of him. This splendid new sanctuary I know is an encouragement to all of you. The merger of the two congregations together uh, can mean real progress in the Lord's work. But let me say this to you. It's going to mean a great deal more work for him. This church is just about the size that it cannot support an adequate staff to make the work go around as it should be leveled out. Uh, and yet it needs more staff if it's to be done efficiently. Don't be one of the people who are criticizing your pastor or who would criticize him because he can't do everything. 
Uh, right now at the stage of growth that this church is in, it will be all that a mortal man can do to get up his sermons and to preach Sunday by Sunday and to hold his prayer service and to make the necessary visitations and the funerals and the weddings. And he needs your prayers. Uh, and I, I count you a very fortunate people to have Gordon Reed and Mrs. Reed, uh, for your pastor and, uh, his wife. I, I would like to have them for my, uh, pastor and my pastor's wife if I were here. I think they're very fine people. I want to say to Herman Miller how much I appreciate your help this week, Herman, and to the, those of you who have had us to meal, uh, how gracious you've been to take us out and to feed us and to look after us so well. Now, each night I've been taking a passage of Scripture and sticking right straight to an exposition of the Word of God. However, because there are several things that I want to touch on, and because of the numbers of young couples that there are in this church and the numbers of young people who are here tonight and who have been coming, I've chosen to take a topic tonight which I want to base solidly on Scripture and then apply it and enforce it with other scriptures into different areas of our life. The passage that I read to you is one from the Old Testament from the first book of Kings, from chapter 14, verse 21, follows. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. And Rehoboam was forty and one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah and Ammonite. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also Sodomites in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nation which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Sheshach, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took away all. He took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their stead shields of brass and committed them unto the hands of the chief of the guard which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so that when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard bare them and brought them back into the guard chamber. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this part of his word. Let us all bow and pray. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, as we come to these few minutes that we have in which to turn our attention to thy word and pray for thy spirit, to bring before our minds the needs of our own nation and of our own churches and our own schools and our own homes and our own lives, we pray thee to speak to us. Wilt thou grant that the words of my mouth in the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. 
Amen. If you will take the time to look up in the book of Chronicles, the reign of that great and wise man Solomon, you will see something of the evils of the old man coming out in his heady and impulsive son, Rehoboam. You see, after David had labored so long to do his great uniting work, Solomon came along and with his great wisdom and genius he was able to solidify the kingdom and make it strong. But in his old age he began to go away from God. His mind and heart were turned away from the Lord. He surfeited his life with every luxury that his heart could set it a desire for. He taxed his people unduly heavy in order to provide the fulfillment of his dearest and most selfish dreams. And then finally Solomon was gathered unto his fathers and died. And this young man, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. And Rehoboam was approached by the elders of the people of God, and they asked for some relief from the heavy burden of the taxes that his father Solomon had imposed upon them. And Rehoboam did not know what to do. He listened to these elders of the people for a while, but then he called in some young men who had surrounded him when he had come into power, and he said, you know what they're saying, don't you? They're saying that they've been taxed too heavy and that I ought to do something for their relief. Now what would you advise me to do? And so they told him, you go and tell these elders that you are the king and that you are the one who makes the laws for this land and that if their father had punished them with, your father had punished them with whips, that you will punish them with scorpions. And so Rehoboam went back and just by one heady, insolent speech, he lost forever ten of the twelve tribes of the United Kingdom. There were only two tribes then left in the south, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin with their headquarters at Jerusalem. The split came and the other ten were to the north. And then after this split, for a while there was still luxury and prosperity in the land. But these people would not turn to God. And we read these words, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. They built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord God did cast out before the children of Israel. And then their high standard of living became their own undoing. They began to rock and to decay. They began to drift down until finally Shajak, the king of Egypt, 
since really what amounted to nothing more than an insulting little military parade in an excursion over into their land and took it over. Shajak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and his soldiers made their way to the temple of the Lord. There they took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made upon the commandments and instructions of David for the glory of God. And do you know what this weak, mean-spirited Rehoboam, the best that he could do, was to have a cheap alloy of brass made up, an imitation, a counterfeit, a phony seal, and they made these imitations and placed them up in the temple in the place of the seals of gold that once had stood there. And then in pompous ceremony, the guards would take these shields of brass and bear them into the temple of the Lord and then bear them away again whenever the king was there. And so that brings us to the theme that I want us to think about tonight, which is shields of brass for shields of gold. Shields of brass for shields of gold. I sometimes get discouraged when I look at the affairs of our nation. And I wonder if our own high standard of living may not somehow be our own undoing. Frankly, I can't take a great deal of consolation in the fact that we have developed electric toothbrushes and push-button windows for our automobiles and low-calorie dog food. Metrical for dogs, even. Uh, our dogs are so fat, they have to go on diet. Isn't that something? We're, we must rank amongst the fattest people in the history of the world. And, you know, when I have been to India and have seen people, when I walk down the street, that I had to step over them. They were lying on pieces of cardboard in the street because they had no place to sleep. And in Africa, where I've seen people with scrawny hands begging for something to eat, I don't get any real satisfaction about our high standard of living. And I wonder if our own culture may not somehow turn in upon us and cause us to be weak. Historians, some historians tell us that 16 out of 21 of the great civilizations in history have fallen because of decay from within, not because the enemy from without was so strong, but simply because they rotted and decayed from within. Let me read you some words from Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. He says, the effeminate luxury which infected the manners of the courts and cities had instilled their secrets and destructive poison into the camps of the legion. The soldiers complained of the weight of the armor which they seldom wore, and they successfully obtained the permission of laying aside both their breastplates and their helmets. The heavy weapons of their ancestors insensibly dropped from their feeble hands. They reluctantly marched into the field. They preferred the ignominy of flight to the pain of wounds. The lifeless soldiers abandoned their own 
and the public defense for their easy indolence. And this was the immediate cause of the downfall of the empire. Now when we place those words along lines in scripture, we can often find parallels for people who claim to be Christians. Paul demanded of those who named the name of Jesus Christ to put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He said, quit you like men and be strong. Stand fast, he said. And we live in an evil day. In 1950, when our ground forces for the first time in history engaged the communist army on the field of battle in Korea, just 48 hours, in fact, after that first encounter, the prelude to a long and sorry road of defection was broadcast on a radio in Korea when a young American army officer of the 24th Infantry Division went on the air and broadcast a speech of treason against his own country and in favor of the communists. And as that war began to drag out, and as more and more of our prisoners were taken, some 7,000 in all, they were for the first time brought face to face, face with communists, in a very real encounter. And the alarming thing about it was that our soldiers were guilty of almost wholesale deception. The army said that one full third of all of our men who were taken prisoner of war and repatriated were guilty of some type of collaboration with the enemy and that one out of every seven was guilty of downright uh, treachery, of being traitors to their own country. And the army conducted a long five-year study in trying to determine what was the reason for this defection. It seemed that when our soldiers were actually fighting on the field of battle, they were just as brave as the communists. But once they were taken and placed into barbed wire compounds as soldiers, and culture against culture was brought into conflict, our men buckled in. And the army wanted to know why. And so they made a long five-year study. They took every one of the over 4,000 prisoners who were repatriated alive and they interrogated them carefully with staffs of, of psychiatrists and psychologists and social interviewers. They delved into that background, where they went to high school, whether they lived on a farm or in the city, whether their parents were separated or whether they were living together, what kind of church they went to. And the army came back and said that our men buckled under because they were weak, first of all, spiritually, that many of them did not have anything to which they placed any great and high allegiance. And so they buckled under stress. It said that they were weak physically, that maybe sitting in front of television sets for a long while, eating rich food, avoiding rigorous exercise, had already begun to make a telling effect upon the physical welfare of our troops. The army said that there was a, a lack of patriotism amongst them, that patriotism was almost passé, that they were ignorant of communism. And as a result of this, these men defected. 
And you could go back to these words of scripture and read it this way and say America did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with all their sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were sodomites in the land and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord did cast out from before the children of Israel. Because in America that's almost the case. There has been a deterioration of our moral and spiritual standards. It has been alarming to a great many of God's people. And that's why, what I wanted to talk about from this. We have taken down fields of gold. And we have put in their stead fields of brass. Tawdry, cheap imitations. About 50 years ago, the statistics for divorce in the United States was that about one out of every six marriages might end in divorce. During World War II, it got down to as low as one out of every two or three marriages ending in divorce. Now they tell us that we have about one out of every four marriages ending in divorce. Now believe me, I'm not speaking carelessly about divorce. I came from a home where divorce struck. I know what it is. And I know that there's a great deal of pain behind those statistics. I know the heartbreak that can come, the harm that's done to everyone involved. And I'm not being cold and dispassionate when I bring it up tonight. I'm not just trying to bring up an unpleasant subject for the sake of mentioning an unpleasant subject. But I'm saying that something is happening to the American home, that it's beginning to decay from within. And that this is largely because those of us who say that we're Christians have taken down fields of gold and have put in their stead fields of brass. And we do not exercise the wholesome influence that we should be exercising upon the society in which God has placed us to live. We are not salt of the earth. We are not light of the world. We are not affecting the people round about us as we should for God. I was ordained nine years ago yesterday. Dr. William Robinson uh, preached the ordination sermon. And in those nine years and in the few years that I served as a student pastor before that time, I can tell you with God Almighty as my witness, as surely as I stand in this pulpit, that personally in my brief ministry, I have seen attempted murder, attempted suicide, alcoholism in acute, chronic form, breakdowns of many different descriptions, stemming out of homes in which there was no real love. And the tragedy about all of this is this, that it in almost every instance that I've named here, in fact, I can't think of one single exception. Those people belong to Presbyterian churches. They profess faith in Jesus Christ, at least nominally. Now, what's wrong? Why should that happen? Why should it be there? What's happened to them? Is the experience of 
of coming into the church, one in which people really are transformed. There are a lot of young people here tonight. Let me say this to you. Marriage, marriage is a Trinitarian agreement. It is a, an agreement between two individuals and God. And you cannot break it without breaking a solemn vow before God. God must be taken into any Christian marriage. And outside of your decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will not make any decision in your entire life so important as the decision relative to your marriage. Who are you going to marry? What is your standard? Will you marry in the Lord? A great deal of the hell that's wrought in the homes, I think, today can be laid at the feet of Hollywood because we've been given a, a sex-obsessed idea of romance. Because we've been taught to make an idol of sex. Two years ago, I was out in, a, in Clovis, New Mexico in a motel, and I picked up the paper on Sunday morning, August the 5th, 1962. And Marilyn Monroe had taken an overdose of barbiturates and had killed herself. And then I began to read the different accounts in the papers about her. She came from a tragic background. She had been to analyst after analyst. She had married a Protestant, a Roman Catholic, a Jew. She listed her religion as, as agnostic, uh, as an agnostic Jew. One writer for Time magazine said she thought success, what she needed was salvation. She said to one of her analysts on one occasion, I am a sex symbol. I don't want to be a symbol. A symbol is a thing. I want to be a person, not a thing. And if you take sex away from the sanctity by which God safeguards it, it becomes only a thing. Only a thing. I work with hundreds of young people at Montreat Anderson College. And I know how acute these problems can be. And I often tell the girls, if, if those of you who are free and easy with your virtue could only hear the boys in the dormitory talking about you after they've come back from a date with you, you would almost go someplace and hang yourself. You'd be so chagrined. You'd be so sorry for the way you've acted. And it is by no accident, and I'm going to be very frank, it's by no accident that many boys, when they go out after a woman, they say, they don't want a woman. What they want is it. It. An experience. An animalistic experience. Nothing more. They don't want a person. And you know, no one keeps the, the carton after they smoke the cigarette. They, they throw it away. And that's what happens when you become sex-obsessed, as our country has. Forty million dollars spent to make the motion picture Cleopatra. 
the lives of an ancient sex pot. Forty million dollars. That's more than half of the present endowment of Princeton University. That's more than all of George Washington's administration cost when he was president of this country. Our country has gone wildly wrong at this point. A few years ago, the Soviet premier, Mr. Khrushchev, visited this country, and he was taken out to Hollywood where someone took him to view the filming of the motion picture, The Can Can. Mr. Eisenhower was greatly embarrassed by what took place. Mr. Khrushchev said to a group of reporters that Soviet culture cared more than viewing the backsides of chorus girls. That was coarse, uncouth, gutter language. It was blunt speech, but the thing that makes it a stinging rebuke is that it came from the lips of an atheist to a supposedly Christian country. What's wrong with us in this area? If you could only, only know that God has desired that this wonderful expression of love should be safeguarded not to cheat us out of anything, but rather to help us to the richest and most rewarding and fulfilling ways of love. If you could only study the scriptures, people go outside the Bible for their knowledge. Read the, the sixth chapter of, of First Corinthians and the seventh chapter of First Corinthians. When ministers from pulpits tell us today that that it's all right to have premarital sex experiences. The people of God are confused. This is a wrong sound from the pulpit. This is not what God's Word says. Let me read you what God's Word says. Surely you know that the unjust will never come into the possession of the kingdom of God. Make no mistake. No fornicator or idolater. None who are guilty either of adultery or of homosexual perversion, no thieves or grabbers or drunkards or slanderers or swindlers will possess the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you have been through the purifying waters. You have been dedicated to God and justified through the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. I am free to do anything, you say. Yes, but not everything is for my good. No doubt I am free to do anything, but I for one will not anything make, not let anything make free with me. Food is for the belly and the belly for food, you say. True. But one day God will put an end to both. But it is not true that the body is for lust. It is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God not only raised our Lord from the dead, he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are limbs and organs of Christ? Shall I then take from Christ his bodily parts and make them over to a harlot? Never. You surely know that anyone who links himself with a harlot becomes physically one with her, for the scripture says the pair shall become one flesh. That he who links himself with Christ is one with him spiritually. Shun fornication. Every other sin that a man can commit is outside the body. But the fornicator sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a shrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Spirit is God's gift to you? You do not belong to yourself. You were bought at a price. 
then honor God in your body. That's what scripture says. That's what God says. That's the standard that he wants maintained. This old body is, is not a fun house. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And let me say this to young people. Remember this, uh, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful little allegory in which he depicts a pilgrim who is making his march over a rough terrain and he wants to go toward heaven. And on his shoulder there is a red lizard and that red lizard whispers into his ear. And an angel comes and says to this pilgrim, let me take that thing off your shoulder and break its back. And then the red lizard whispers into the ear of the pilgrim who's trudging on his way toward heaven and says, oh, don't, don't let him touch me. You know all of the things that I let you imagine. You know all of the things that we do together. Don't let him touch me. And the angel says, I must take that thing. And so finally the pilgrim says to the angel that he can. And the angel takes hold of the red lizard and breaks its back and flings it to the ground. And when it hits the ground, it explodes and is transformed into a great white stallion. And the pilgrim mounts on this horse and gallops away toward his destination. And that's all an allegory by which he tries to teach us sublimation, by which he tries to tell us that we can hold ourselves in check, we can keep our bodies un under, we can discipline ourselves for God. We do not have to allow ourselves to wallow in emotional orgies, that we can find a rich and rewarding experience by discipline. And if we try to take some other way, then one day we find that all of our vaunted freedom only leaves us jaded and burnt out completely. You know, it is indicative to me that in a time in which everyone can talk frankly and freely about sex, and there are books on sex in every newsstand that you go to, and in every library, and classes on it in all of the public schools, practically in all of the churches, that with all of this education about it, we have more trouble in that way than we've ever had in all of our history as far as we know. And if you're a student of literature and you read what takes place, you know that the sex that is depicted in many of our motion pictures and in many of our novels is not a healthy expression of sex. It's always some bizarre aberration, some old man trifling with a 12-year-old girl like in Lolita some crazy rapist in some other picture. It's always something that's sickening and spoiled. It's not a healthy form of expression in this area at all. And yet we're supposed to have all of this knowledge in that area. But the knowledge has done us no good because we've tried to divorce it from the standards of God. Right and wrong can only have meaning according to the word of God and the standards of God. And any time we trample God's standards underfoot, then we have a dreadful price to pay. Let me say this to you young people. I could preach all evening on this, and because I come up against it so much, I just can't help but say it. When you get ready to be married, be sure that you're emotionally mature and spiritually mature. 
I think, parents, let me say this to you, that one reason so many youngsters are getting married so early today is that in their homes they are insecure. They want to get away from home. They want to get away from a nagging, possessive mother. They want to get away from a father who is grumbly. They want to get away from an insecure home situation and they'll get married at the first opportunity they get because there's no real love in their home. Love your children. Love them in the Lord. God pity the boy or girl who's never heard his father and mother pray for him. One of the greatest preachers I ever knew was Alistair Cameron Walker. Someone was mentioning him to me the other night. And Alistair Walker, once I asked him how he was converted, and he said, I was converted when I crept up to my father's study one time, and I heard him play, praying aloud, and I sat down by the door and listened at the crack at the bottom of the door, and I heard my father pouring out his heart before God for my salvation. And he said, I couldn't take that. I had to give my heart to the Lord. Has your boy or your girl ever heard you pray? Have they ever heard you pray? Have they ever seen you read your Bible? Have they ever seen you on your knees? In your home is there thoughtfulness? Sometimes get the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians down and take the word love or charity out of it and and put your own name in its stead and let this be uh, the way by which you judge what real love is. Look at that. Put your own name in there and say, John is patient, John is kind, John envies not, John is never boastful, not conceited, not rude, never selfish, not quick to take offense. John keeps no score of wrong. Mary does not gloat over other men's sins. Mary does, Mary delights in the truth. There is nothing that John or Mary cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, its endurance. Because they love. There's a wonderful little story that I read a long time ago by O. Henry, uh, the famous short story writer. It's called The Baby's Shoes. It's a right touching thing, but it, it, it illustrates this very well. He tells the story of a young couple who had come to the parting of the ways. They'd been married for only a year, two, two or three years. And their interests had gone different ways, and so at last they were breaking up. And they had gone into, the wife had gone into the bedroom. They were breaking up the household effects, and she was going through the drawers in her room. And she was taking out her things and putting them in the suitcase. And she went back, and when she moved some things around, she saw two little leather baby shoes. And these were the shoes of their little baby that had died. And when she saw those shoes, a tear came in her eye and she picked them up and held them close to her heart. She would like to have them. It was her baby. And then for the first time in a long, long time, she thought about him. And she thought he was the father of this baby. Maybe he'd like to have them. And so she put him first for a change, and she put the shoes over on a table in the room and gathered the rest of her things together in that room and went out into another part of the house, and then he came into the room to take his belongings, and he saw the shoes, 
and he picked them up and he thought about her for the first time in a long time. He put her first. And he thought of all that she'd gone through to give birth to this little baby and that the least he could do was to let her have those shoes. And for the first time, he put her first and he went outside to take the shoes to her. And you know what happened. When they stopped their selfishness and each put the other one first, their hearts were fused together again in love. And their home did not go away. Don't take down the heels of golden, pure, unselfish love and put in their stead any tawdry brass shields that the world might offer. Our mothers today know a great deal about child psychology and calories and nutrition and food, but we know very little about the principles of righteousness and the word of God that we ought to know. You people in Atlanta love Henry W. Grady, I suppose, and I saw his statue when I was coming downtown. One of my favorite stories is about Henry Grady. In 1886, he, he made a famous speech. He was just a young staff member of the Atlanta Constitution. He went to New York City where he spoke at the Waldorf Astoria to the uh, uh, a big society there, the New England Society. And the most popular orator of that day was a preacher, T. DeWitt Talmadge. He spoke first, and he told how the northern soldier had come home from the Civil War all glowing with victory. The Union had been preserved. The slaves had been freed. And how he came marching back to music and thrills again and confetti and and falling down the streetways in New York, and what a wonderful thing it was for the return of the northern soldier. And this young man from Atlanta, Georgia, stood up, and he told the New England Society about the southern soldier who had returned from the war, how he had come home in a tattered gray uniform, often to find the home in which he had lived burned down and his orchard burned and destroyed, his fences broken down, his fields grown up in weeds and thorns, and perhaps not being able even to find his own family. And he did it in such a deep and touching way that the next day Henry Grady waked up to be a famous man, and he received invitations from everywhere to speak. And he came back to Atlanta, and that was the prelude to a great career that he had as a a newspaper man and as a political leader in the Southland. And one day they missed him from his death at the Atlanta Constitution. They couldn't find Henry Grady, and later he wrote a little article about what had happened. He'd, he'd gone out of the town. His appointment secretary couldn't find him. Important people wanted to see him. And you know what he did, what he had done? He had left Atlanta and had gone out into a country place where his mother lived. And he went to her. And he said, Mother, I've come home because I want to, I want to hear you pray again. I want to hear you read the Bible once more. I want to eat the meals that you prepare for me. When I go to bed at night, I want to hear you pray. He said, I just want to be a little boy again. I've lost all my ideals. Something's happened to me. And later when he came back, he said that his mother had helped him to gain his faith again in what he was able to do. 
Do your children see in you principles of integrity and honor and righteousness and cleanness and purity that could make them come to you for ideals? Fathers, love your children. Be not bitter against them. Do not quarrel against them. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, reverence your husbands. Children, obey your parents. I don't believe that all the trouble is with the young people today. I saw just today a, a little old thing in the paper where some Babylonian tablet had been unearthed and the thing was dated at 2800 B.C. Uh, I mean 2800 years ago, not 2800 B.C., excuse me. Uh, 2,800 years ago from this time. Uh, and you know what they deciphered it? When they deciphered it, it said, Alas, alas, times are not what they used to be. The children no longer obey their parents. It went all the way back to then. You can't expect anything more when on television, when you see the father uh, portrayed, he's always some stupid boob who uh, is getting into trouble and the kids are wisecracking to him uh, back and forth. Our young people never learned to be so insolent until they saw it on TV. Uh, this is the image that is projected of the Father. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture gives us a much better picture than that. But I don't have time to, to go through everything tonight, but I do want to touch on one or two other things. That is this. That in the home we have taken down shields of gold and we have put in their stead shields of brass. I wonder how many of you here present tonight, without lying, could really say that you have a family altar. Could really say that it's the morning at the breakfast table, or perhaps the evening before you go to bed, you pray with your family, you try to get together with them at least one time a day, and together you pray. You read some passage of scripture together. You ought to do that. You ought to do that. You ought to come to church together. You ought to encourage one another in the Lord. You ought to be so close to your children that they love you and respect you and that they want to turn to you for wisdom and for the principles that they need to guide them. You ought to take time with your family. You ought to be with them. Don't take down shields of gold and put up shields of brass. I think that our nation has suffered because in our school systems we have taken down shields of gold and put in their stead shields of brass. There used to be a time in which every school in this country practically taught principles of Christian faith, a reverence for God. And I think one of the most disheartening things that's taken place in the last few years, one of the things that has sorely troubled the people of God has been a very unfortunate decision of the Supreme Court saying that there could no longer be the recitation even of the Lord's Prayer in the public schools. Even when it was voluntary, even when you didn't have to attend it, because it would be psychologically damaging to the few people who might elect not to go and say the Lord's Prayer. They never indicate how psychologically damaging it might be to the people who say grace at home and who come to church and who know God, and yet when they go, go to school, they, they are told that it's illegal to talk about God at school. This is not right. It's not right at all. One justice of the Supreme Court has said that 
in matters, Justice Douglas, that in matters of religion, the Supreme Court was taking a position that the public school should be absolutely neutral in this. Let me read you something written by Professor John Bailey, a distinguished theologian uh, who died just a few years ago. He made this in an address at Princeton University. He told what happened in, in Germany between 1930 and 1945 when the German government officially assumed an attitude of neutrality in matters of religion. Our own generation has been given many unhappy object lessons in the result to which this pro process of religious neutrality will lead us if it finds nothing to check us. Above all, we know what happened to the intellectual life of Germany between 1930 and 1945. When I was a student in two German universities just before the First World War, they were in the forefront of advance in almost every department of learning. But at the same time, they reached a condition of spiritual neutrality such as up to that time had never elsewhere been paralleled within Western civilization. They had no unifying philosophy of life. There was a sort of vacuum at the center of it all. And so the intellectual life of Germany fell victim to the first definite and robust philosophy of life that began to be preached, which was Nazism. Here was something to fill the vacuum. And here with a vengeance was something that would permit everything and cement every specialism and every individualism into a new sense of community and corporate purpose. And what hell was wrought on the face of the earth as a result of that. And that can happen here. All of these beatniks that you see on the street, they claim that they have no sense of purpose. Here's what one student, a senior at Princeton says, I am conditioned to question, not to accept, but to explore and to doubt, not to believe. He goes on in his frustration to say, the day may come when I lose control because I am sick of it all. I may go tearing around town in search of a cause. What I cannot have is a cause, however, because I know causes are the opiate of the masses who fought two world wars and then said, hush, don't move a finger. The frustration is not only emotional and intellectual, but spiritual. When he says, I am sick of it, he is speaking of a sickness of the soul and a sickness unto death. And that's what's going to happen in this country. When young people turn for their thrills uh, to bizarre and erratic things because they have no purpose, nothing that they can hold on to any longer, because God has been declared illegal in the public school, because we've taken him out, I wonder, wonder what George Washington, who knelt in the nose at Valley Forge and prayed to God when this little country was coming into existence, would think about that decision of the Supreme Court. I wonder what Benjamin Franklin, deist though he was, who when the Constitution was being formed and it looked as if the Constitutional Convention would break up and that they would all go their separate ways and form 13 separate and distinct countries rather than one United States, and how Ben Franklin called them to their knees and said that there was a God who ruled over the destinies of men and nations and that it might be that if they appealed to God that he would lead them to some common agreement. And out of that common agreement came the Constitution of the United States of America. 
What would Abraham Lincoln, who said, I've been driven to my knees simply because there was no place else to go, what would he say of this decision? In a time in which immorality is rife, in a time in which our mental hospitals are clogged and filled, in a time in which our homes are breaking down, a time in which our patriotism is gone by the board, it's distressing when the court says that prayers in public school of any description, even the Lord's Prayer, have to be taken away. Last summer I read a book by a man up at Washington and Lee University. It was a, a book called Lee After the War. It showed how this great, dignified, brilliant general came home from the Civil War to a little college called Washington College in Lexington, Virginia, where there were only 46 students. And how that great man took all of his tremendous ability and put it to work to build a school there. And this biographer, who so far as I know is not even a Christian, says very frankly that Lee, that Lee came to Lexington more in the spirit, more in the spirit of a missionary than an educator. And his own doctor said that when Lee was in his last sickness, that his lips quivered and his eyes filled with tears, and he said, Doctor, I could go on if I could only know that all my boys in the college are sincere Christians. Now that's a significant statement when those tears came from the eyes of a man who never shed a tear at Gettysburg or Appomattox or Cold Harbor. That man leaves. This biographer says he never used the term Christian education for the simple reason that the thought never occurred to him that any other type of education was worth having. He wanted his boys to be Christian, and yet some of our church schools today seem to be ashamed, ashamed of Jesus, ashamed of real Christian faith. Oh, how we need to put that shield of gold back up in the schools today. In the churches, we've taken down shields of gold and put in their stead shields of brass. People in our own denomination ask the question, do we need an infallible Bible? Taking down a shield of gold and putting in its stead a shield of brass, a tarnished shield that can only reflect the speculations of man, that says that even the revelation, even the self-disclosure of God is dependent upon how man wants to receive it. Even in our own church this time. And this is a sad day. I remember going with a minister in, in one of our own churches. We went to a man's house. He didn't even know the man except casually. And, and we ate a big meal together. And when we had finished this meal... When we finished this meal, the, the minister asked him, he said, Bill, you belong to our church, don't you? And he said, no, I don't. And he said, why don't you join? And the man blew a perfect smoke ring. I'll never forget it. He blew a perfect smoke ring. And he said, okay, I think I will. 
We walked out the door. We never said a prayer. We never mentioned the name of God. We never mentioned the name of the Bible. We never mentioned the name of Christ. And when we walked down the walk from the home, the man said, we just want another soul to Christ. And Christ wasn't even mentioned. That's a shield of brass where a shield of gold should have been sanded. This has happened in our own churches. Well, what's the answer to all of this so much for this diagnosis of all of these terrible maladies that exist in our church? What's the answer to it? The answer is to simply come back to a strong personal faith in God through Jesus Christ and seek the power of the Holy Spirit to govern and guide us in all that we undertake. That's what the answer is. It's a commitment to Jesus Christ. Remember so well Dr. Robinson introducing me to the Heidelberg Catechism and it sums it up very well in that first question. What is my only comfort in life and in death? And you can take this as the main answer to everything I've mentioned here tonight. My only comfort in life and in death is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his own precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and so delivered me from all the power of the devil that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and also by his Holy Spirit he assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That's what a commitment to Jesus Christ is. Let us stand and pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, our time has gone away from us, of course, but I do want to give you the opportunity, just by raising your hand, if you would like to come and speak with me at the close of the service, I'll be here at the front. Maybe I've spoken to some one of you tonight. I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about your home life. I don't know what you've done. I know this, that Jesus is here. I know that he is able to take you and to cleanse you and to forgive you and to remake you, no matter what you may have done in life. He can remake your home. He can help some of you parents fall in love with each other again. He can cleanse some of you young people and give you the disciplines that you need to face an evil generation. He can take hold of this church and make it a strong church. He can take hold of our school system through individuals. God is always looking for men, not methods, but men and women and boys and girls. And he wants to remake them. And if you have felt the conviction of the Spirit of the Lord because of anything that has been spoken here tonight, you are just the person that Jesus is looking for. And his gracious word of forgiveness is sure and true to you. And if you would like to raise your hand and say by lifting that hand, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ tonight as my Lord and Savior, 
and you have never done so, will you slip your hand up and say, pray for me, I want to accept Christ tonight as my Savior. 